Hello and welcome to the first episode of the brand new season of What the Fintech, the podcast from the team behind Fintech Futures and the Banking Technology Magazine. Yes, your favourite fintech-focused podcast has now reached season four and we're looking forward to chatting with a host of experts to bring you even more insights into the wonderful world of financial technology over the course of this year. My name is Paul Hindle, editor of Fintech Futures, and to kick things off this year on this historic first episode of 2023, we are joined by the wonderful Leda Glyptis. Leda, how are you? I am very well, and I've just realised that although I've been writing for Banking Tech and Fintech Futures for coming on to six years, this is actually my first time on the podcast, so I'm super excited to be here. Excellent, excellent. The first one of the first one of 2023 as well. How is that shaping up for you? I mean, 2023 is looking pretty good for me, to be honest with you. I feel terrible because it's such a hard year for most people, but I've started the year with some great things happening at work with 10X, and my book is coming out in like a matter of days. So in the middle of a lot of doom and gloom, I'm, uh, I'm feeling very buoyant this year. Excellent. Yeah, I mean, so readers of the website will know all about your always popular food for thought column that you write for us every Thursday, which we know as hashtag later rights day. And for anyone listening unaware of Leda's column, I would thoroughly recommend checking that out on the Fintech Futures website. But on the show this week, as you've already mentioned it there as well, we're discussing another of your writing endeavours, which is your new book, Bankers Like Us, Dispatches from an Industry in Transition, which will be launching on Wednesday, 1st of February and is available to pre-order from the Routledge website now. I will leave a link to the pre-order page in the episode description below and along with a link to register your interest to attend the launch party for the book as well, which is taking place on Wednesday, 1st of February in London. So please do follow that link if you'd be interested to join that. It'd be great to see as many people there as we can. So we'll be diving into that a little bit later. But as always, to get us started is our news in numbers segment. So this is where our guest has gone out and found a new story featuring an interesting number to discuss to get us started. So Leda, what have you brought along for us today? So my number is quite a gloomy start to the episode, I'm afraid. It is actually from a Fintech Futures article of a few days ago. Crypto.com to cut 20% of workforce citing unforeseeable industry events. And I picked it for two reasons. One is that um, that number or its little friend, 15%, seems to be coming up again and again. We are looking at almost every company in fintech, fintech, finserv, and tech giants outside of fintech cutting between 12 and, and 20% of their workforce. So it's impossible to ignore that there is a, a resizing, some call it a downsize, some call it a right-sizing after spending plentiful investor money in previous years. But that number is definitely the summary of the first few weeks of this year and I think will be with us for a few months, so absolutely impossible to ignore. The other reason I picked that story is that although the number is, is sadly accurate and will describe weeks and months to come, is the right-sizing and change and hit that the crypto world particularly took unforeseeable. I'm pretty sure we've been talking about the change that will come with a greater focus on governance and a greater sort of set of controls in place. So although the number is hard, particularly hard for the colleagues affected, and it's definitely widespread, not exactly unforeseeable, is it? Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, you mentioned that. I mean, it's interesting that it is always seem to be around that, that 15% mark. Is it like a kind of CEO handbook, I guess, where it's you've got to make job cuts. Is that the kind of target number? Or is, how does that kind of come about, I guess? I don't think they get a secret handbook that says these are the numbers. What I think happens is that when times are good, people are more flexible about hiring. That could be that you 
open experimental divisions or double down in things that are nice to have or hire or promote people from within who can grow in their jobs, but then they need more support. So you end up with more teams where a small group of experts would get the job done. You might get with a sort of slightly larger number of people learning on the job supported more widely. When you need to downsize, there is a number that companies feel they can absorb between managing their finances and not crippling their operations. And I do think that it's a rule of thumb. I suspect between 10% and because anything below 10% is not material enough to be expressed in percentages. Again, it's always very real for the individual affected, but 3% in a company of 10,000 people is not exactly, it won't make the headlines. When you start talking about percentages that are material to the number of employees, it's about keeping that balance between not affecting operations and keeping the structure going. But uh, I don't think there is an exact science to that number. Well, see, there's a second round. There was definitely no science to the number. Yeah. Yeah, I guess, I mean, one of the things that people are trying to avoid as well is repeat cuts, right? You don't want that to become an issue. And I read somewhere if you're going to cut deep is usually the way to go. But I mean, you mentioned it there as well, foreseeable into the start of this year. I mean, do you see 2023, is there any light at the end of the tunnel towards the end of the year, 2024? Or what's your kind of take? And I know it's hard to predict so far. Into the future. My crystal ball is depressing this year. I think the first half of the year will be about right-sizing, cutting costs, investments not being plentiful. Assuming no other major disaster befalls us on the back of everything that has happened, I shouldn't be laughing. When you think about risk from within a bank or financial institution, you think about unforeseen events that you can't prepare for. And then you think about your risk matrices of the things that you can't prepare for. So assuming that everything that comes in 2023 could be accommodated in a risk matrix and you don't get any events that are momentous in a good way or bad way. So nothing equivalent of the iPhone hits the market, nothing equivalent of a global energy crisis hits the market. Then I would say that towards the second half of the year, we will stop seeing that constraint and we'll see a stabilization. But I don't think we will see plentiful investments. I don't think we will see doubling down on aggressive growth. I think we will see people looking at real metrics for their businesses on the fintech side and managing more prudently from a VC perspective. Not necessarily a bad thing, but again, a very, very difficult time for the people directly affected. So as mentioned at the top of the show then, Lady, you have a new book coming out. So to start off, congratulations. Can you tell us a little bit more about that then, how that came about? I'd love to. So as as you know, because you have to suffer through it, and as hopefully our, our listeners know, I've been writing for Finter Futures for a few years. And the column has been an absolute revelation for me and a gift because it started off as therapy, to be honest with you, having a frustrating day and rather than being miserable about it, finding the patterns to what you experienced and trying to find the universality of the experience, but also a way out of it. And in creating that column, we tapped into a community of people that are like-minded and are thinking about problems and solutions the same way that has really embraced the topics and style of, of leader rights and, and has been just an incredible gift to me. So on the back of that, of the column, Tanya and you guys, the team at Fintech Futures were like, okay, maybe time for the book. 
And the original idea was to weave the most popular columns and some of the more recurring topics. So things that are top of mind for me and things that are resonating the most with our readers into a bigger narrative. When I started putting it together, that really didn't work. It really didn't work. There was both too much repetition and also something missing. But actually, it was an interesting exercise in saying, if you have to write long form, what is the topic? What is the one thing that the column is about? What is the one thing that I'm spending all my time on? And that's how the book came about. The book is essentially saying 15 years into digital transformation, the economy has gone digital. Regulators have actually shown an ability to become learning organizations and mature along a digital curve really rapidly. The banks, less so. The digital journeys are incomplete. They're slower than anticipated. The banks get in their own way. And the reason for that has nothing to do with the technology and everything to do with the people inside those banks. And not individuals being malicious, not at all, but the people playing out choreographies that they've inherited through the way they were hired, through the way they were trained, through the way they were managed, and through the way they were taught to manage. So the first half of the book looks at all the ways in which bankers like us get in the way of the progress that we champion. Everything from the way we organize our calendars to the way we do requests for proposals inside a bank is not conducive to the transformation. And it matters more than the technology being tested extensively. It matters more than balancing risk matrices because actually you know how to do that. You know how to balance a risk matrix. What you don't know is how to get out of your own way. So the second half of the book is how do we get out of our own way in ways big and small, in ways that can be personal and driven by an individual sitting at their desk without necessarily leading a rebellion or risking their job. Things that teams can do differently that require a higher degree of buy-in, but still is not truly transformative. And then also the type of change that can really come about if organizations and partnerships inside the economy see to it. And yeah, I mean, you've mentioned that you've been writing the, the column for us for a while now. How was that kind of transition to the book then? Was it was it something you took to or it took a little work? Or? It took a little work. <laughs> I loved it. In the end, and I've gotten the bug now, so I'm already working on book number two, which is very exciting. But it took a little work because um, habits are important, right? In fact, I actually write about habits in the book. But having done the column for over six years now, I've developed a sort of set of habits that both help me write, even though not always on time, as you know only too well. But also, once you've done something so many times for so many years, you instinctively develop habits that are suited to the length, to the duration. You gravitate to topics that can be tackled in whatever it is, 1,500 words or whatever you end up with. I don't even know how long it is. I just know how, when I'm done writing it though. And, and, and those instincts and habits have to be broken to write long form because it's actually, if you write your long form piece as lots of little short form pieces, it doesn't read well. So actually getting out of that habit and getting into the cadence of rap, writing something long form, allowing yourself to get into more complicated arguments, more complicated explanations, but also creating a bigger narrative arc that runs 300 pages rather than five paragraphs. That took some doing. When I actually got into it, it was a very enjoyable process because it does allow you to get into a little bit more detail. It allows you to get more technical with some explanations and examples that the reader can read or skip 
but it's there and available if one wants it, which you can't do in a short form. So it was really hugely enjoyable, but it wasn't an immediate transition. Oh, I can do short, I can do long. It wasn't at all. I guess then, without giving too much away, I mean, what kind of, you've mentioned some of the main areas of discussion for the book. What are some of the key themes for this one and your main kind of goals for the book as well? Because obviously we've got a big community that gets together for later rights, but then is the goal of this book to kind of like target the wider banking industry as well? Yeah, exactly. And in fact, one of the things that John, my editor and I were talking about is that although the book is written from a banking perspective, anyone engaging in transformation would probably and hopefully find it useful. And there is no banking example that isn't explained. And it's not just because I think it will appeal to a non-banking audience, but the secret is that, dirty little secret of banking, is that most bankers don't know banking. They know their bit of banking. So if you have someone who spent their entire life in corporate trust, they won't know the first thing about small and medium enterprise lending or retail banking or transaction banking and correspondent banking. So all examples are explained exactly for that reason. I'd say that the two themes of the book, one around personal accountability, which readers of the column will be very familiar with, but a lot of the things that perpetuate the challenges we all lament do have manifestations that are small in every day. And unless we all take consistent accountability for A, not doing them and B, stopping them when they happen, then they just carry on happening. Everything from microaggressions to having a particularly large and complicated piece of work and agreeing to have a review every six weeks for half an hour. You know for a fact you're not going to have a proper conversation, so why do you agree to it? It's such a small thing. If you actually take a step back and say, you know, if we're something very close to my day job, right? If we're thinking about transforming our banking core, we shouldn't be meeting as stakeholders once every six weeks for half an hour. Because if we do that, we're delegating most of the decision-making to people who are not, A, accountable for it, and B, not necessarily as informed as the people making the decisions. And therefore, the people doing all the work will be managing to the half-hour presentation rather than to the business needs. And you know that you're creating a rod for your own back. It doesn't sound like a big thing, but actually... If you say no to that way of governing your project and you create space for thinking and you create an environment where the right issues and tensions and trade-offs are surfaced to the right group with the adequate amount of information to make informed decisions, you've already transformed the way you work. And it sounds like a small thing, but most people don't do it. Most people will just go with the flow of well, this is how we work, this is the governance. So one of the themes is around that personal accountability and everyday, simple, accessible ways you can change the way you operate inside a big organization and make a material change for both yourself and your team and by extension, your clients and your stakeholders. The second theme that I've touched on on uh, Leader Rights a couple of times, but long form lens to exploring a bit more is that actually on so many levels, Finance solves problems at the wrong level. So a lot of cultural change is sponsored by the CEO, but actually it should be permitted at the individual level. You need to be able to change your behavior and supported to change your behavior much lower down in the org. You shouldn't have your top boss to say, be nice to your colleagues or hire people who have different skill sets. By extension, as problems that should be solved lower down are solved really high up the org. The problems that should be solved high up the org are not solved at all. 
So towards the end of the book, after we've said, if you do these things at an individual level and you do these other things at a team level, so for instance, you hire differently, you make sure you support your teams differently, you support your team members differently, you learn from your mistakes and you don't penalize anyone and you don't hide the error and all of those things, you start surfacing the more complicated questions that need to be answered higher up in the org, for instance. And you and I worked on a piece on that last summer, I believe, for later rights. If you have technology that allows you to create unit economics that are radically lower, you have the ability to bring to market products that are radically inclusive at a profit, not even as charity. And you have to do it to scale because if you do it in small numbers as a charity exercise, it doesn't work. But you can do it to scale. You can drive meaningful societal transformation by making infrastructure and technology stack decisions at the top of the organization. Those decisions are one or two horizons too removed because all the decisions and everyday changes that should happen lower down in the org are bubbling up. So that's one of the themes that is coming up again and again, particularly towards the end of the book, is that unless we start tackling problems at the right level, the headspace for the really complicated transformative problems is just not there. And it's not like someone else does the work. Nobody does the work. And we're, we're leaving so much value on the table, both on a societal level and on a material capitalist level. Excellent. Well, I know there's a lot of people who are looking forward to reading the book. And as you mentioned at the start of the show, so we've got a launch party coming for that. It's, well, hopefully by the time this podcast goes out, um, we'll still have a few days before that. So that will be on Wednesday, the 1st of February in London. Again, I will leave a link below the podcast to register your interest for that. But how are you looking forward to that? Are you looking forward to the, uh, the party and finally getting it out there? So much. I'm looking forward to it so much. I mean, writing a book is a very solitary endeavor, even though I had amazing support from John at Taylor Francis. And it was a looking back interventions that undoubtedly made it for a better book, it felt very light touch and very collaborative. So I enjoyed the process and I always felt supported, but it is a fundamentally solitary endeavor. So being able to share it with a community, essentially you're not a writer unless you have readers, right? And this community of people that have been supporting my writing is absolutely essential to the experience. And I'm very much addressing the book to them, as you'll see when you pick it up, as you'll often have with occasions like that. Obviously, a lot of folks have signed up to join us and we've also invited a lot of folks. And I am absolutely blown away by the number of people who will be traveling from really far away to be there. I feel like I will be doing one of those speeches that you hear at weddings. I mean, anyone boarding a plane to be with me is touching. There are people who are boarding a plane from really, really far. And I'm I'm absolutely blown away. My um. My boss, our founder at 10X, who also wrote the introduction, will also be there. And for loyal readers of Leader Rights, my mum will be there. And I think she'll have a little line doing autographs as I'm signing the book. <laughs> she'll have a longer line as, a, as the fan club for Leader's mum is considerable, it turns out. Excellent. Well, then definitely looking forward to that. Yes, yeah, so as I mentioned, I will keep a link below this as well to go find out some more information and, and details. And again, if anyone would like to register their interest to join, then you're more than welcome to do so. Some of the, you know, I've been editing a lot of your column pieces now for coming on two years. Some of the key themes that they run throughout are things like equality, inclusion, diversity in banking as well. Do you feel that things like that have improved in the space over your career now or still away from where we need to be? I have days when I feel hopeful. I have occasionally conversations with people who 
express a surprise. We consider diversity, inclusion, access an issue. And, and I don't mean white, middle-aged, heterosexual men considering a surprise because that comes a lot. And in fact, I got some comments on a recent piece very recently about how it's heavily divisive to be talking about gender. And of course, it was it was a man who found it divisive. I don't think we're anywhere near where we need to be. I think language and awareness has evolved and people are more informed about the boundaries of the acceptable. So actually, they've changed the way they say and do certain things rather than the challenges we're presented with. There are still huge demographic biases. There are still huge biases that are passed as perception when statistics speak against it. Those truisms that a woman is more likely to be told to calm down when a man's saying exactly the same things and at the same time will be told to, they're assertive. All of those things are anecdotal, but actually every piece of research suggests that they are true. We also find that our diversity by any metric, social background, socioeconomic background, type of schooling, gender, any way you choose to define ethnicity, that our societies are so much more diverse than our offices. And that has to be by design or accident. So even if you don't ascribe malice to it, it takes some doing to have a hugely diverse society out there and somehow only let a particular type of person through your doors. So we're not talking about doing anything other than allowing the best of society to come into our doors. That's it. And I find that some of the language that comes with cancel culture makes talking about some of these things really difficult, really divisive, almost like you have to pick a side. And it's like, I don't have to pick a side. You shouldn't have to pick a side. All the sides need to be represented. That's the point. I find it exhausting, to be honest with you. The fact that we have to explain that humanity actually is equally able to flourish and equally able to contribute. I find it baffling that we still have to do it. And yet we still have to do it. So unpleasant as it is, we need to keep plugging away at it. And I mean, one of the reasons why the, I think the column has been so popular, and I'm confident the book will be as well, not only the voice that you write in, but the fact that you're managing to tap into a lot of these workplace issues and frustrations that people are dealing with and can relate to. So I guess on that note, do you have, from your kind of experience writing this now, for like you mentioned six years for the column, any tips for listeners then when it comes to dealing with toxic bosses or colleagues in workplace environments like this? Yeah, I do, but it's not necessarily pleasant, right? There are three things you can do. The first one is find allies. It's not just easier if someone else calls it for you. It's also more credible. It's, it's horrible that that's the case. But if you and I are somewhere and somebody has a go at you for not knowing what you're talking about because you're young, it's much more credible if I defend you than if you defend yourself. Similarly, if we're talking and somebody has a go at me for being a woman, it's much more credible if you defend me and vice versa. So finding allies who are willing to not just declare it in their email signature, but actually go to battle when it's needed and when it's inconvenient. Because the thing is, the opportunity where your allies need to step in is not going to be dramatic. It's going to be mundane. And your choice will be whether you're going to be the person that's going to cause trouble or just let it lie, the microaggression, the micro issue. But um, when Sam Emery and I wrote the piece about allyship, late last year, she taught me a major lesson that day because I said, 
these microaggressions are important. She said, there's nothing micro if it's your life and it constantly happens. It's only micro to the observers or the people doing it. And she's absolutely right. And allowing yourself to think about it like that is, is super important. So what do you do if it's happening? Find allies. Find, surround yourself with people who don't mind being the person who will interrupt the party, the person who will interrupt the conversation, the person who might create tension by saying, this is not okay. The second thing is even more uncomfortable and is call it out. I always call it out and you can see people are profoundly uncomfortable. They wish you wouldn't. But you know what? If we don't, it just carries on. It carries on even with, it carries on regardless of whether the person meant anything by it or not. By calling it out, you live in hope that someone who was unaware of what they were doing now knows better. Or someone who was aware and didn't think it was important now know better. But if they were both aware and thought they would get away with it, well, now they know they can't. And maybe that will change their behavior. So the first thing is allies. The second one is calling it out. The third one is leave. Like you have options. If you're in an environment that puts you in that position, that makes you constantly battle for breathing space, then do they deserve your greatest contributions and your hard work? You have options. Leave. And aside from your writing as well, then just briefly to go into, you also work at um, obviously 10X, a big player in the core banking space. So, I mean, we could probably do an, an entire other podcast on this as well, but it'd be great just quickly to, to get your thoughts on core banking landscape as well at the moment and what banks may be doing better here or tips for innovation moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's my favorite topic. I could talk for hours here. A few years ago, I wrote a piece called I Want My Bling Where I Can See It. It was about banks spending a lot of their innovation dollars on things that were visible to their consumers, to the streets, to their competitors, to their investors. And for a very long time, we saw a lot of the innovation investment on UI, UX, partnerships, things that could be announced, things that could be seen. Meanwhile, you're still on COBOL-based mainframes and things are falling apart, right? One of the biggest drivers for core banking transformation being a topic that is discussed extensively is actually the regulator. The fact that the regulator has started talking about what is expected in terms of consumer protection, in terms of, of serving our customers and, and what good looks like. And that regulatory body becomes much savvier and saying, no, you can do and you should do better. Being able to provide the kind of service we know is possible, you can't do it on your old core. The second reason that core banking transformation is on everyone's mind is ambition. The banks that succeeded in doing certain things are running out of low-hanging fruit. And if your ambition to go down this digital route and really participate in the digital economy is true, then you need a scalable, secure, flexible core that allows for real-time connectivity, that allows for a scalable architecture, that allows for optionality. The third reason is that it's become easier. And it's easier because of companies like 10X that create a utility that as a bank you can use and say, I'll do all my value additive stuff there. And all of this stuff is essential, but I don't need to build it myself. And one of the things that I think differentiates 10X from our competitors in this space is that where a lot of our neo competitors have come in and gone for a sort of thin sliver of the smallest possible thing they can create to solve the problem for banks, we've come in and said, actually, in a banking stack, there's a lot there that isn't differentiating. That is an absolutely essential hygiene factor for all your ambitions, but it is a utility. It is not where you should play for competitiveness. So let us do it. Let us do it in a way that is 
cheaper than what you used to have and faster and better and more scalable. And you focus on what is a thinner layer than we would have thought 10 years ago. But actually, that's where the differentiating capabilities and products get built. And just briefly, I mean, can you give us some insight into what, with your career and so far, what it's been like working then with big banks? And is there any advice you can give to fintech startups looking to partner up with banks as well? So I started my career in a startup, actually, back when we didn't call them that. We just called them small companies and we pretended that they were not. It wasn't cool to be a startup then. We were trying to create a sort of semblance of depth. And when we started, there was four of us and two were identical twins. So we looked like there were even fewer of us than there were actually because they just looked identical. And our very first client couldn't tell them apart. And for a while, thought there was only one of them until they saw them together at a meeting. It was, it was actually hilarious. And po- post that job, I spent a long time inside banking and then crossed over to the other side. So I would say that there are a couple of things that are key to selling into a bank. One is, yes, banks are dysfunctional. Absolutely. I wrote a book about it. You should read it. But they're not stupid. And we do see a lot of startups over the years, increasingly less so now, but it still happens, that come in with the dismissive, let me show you how it's done approach. The reality is that banking has evolved over a very long period of time with regulatory complexity, product complexity, and also estate complexity. You know, if you had acquisitions and mergers and technology is not always streamlined, there are reasons why it's hard to change. If you want to sell into that problem statement, you need to understand it. You need the credibility to be part of a solution. You can't come in and flaunt a specialist digital knowledge because that knowledge is not that niche anymore. Ten years ago, it may have been, but now you need to approach your clients respectfully. If you want to sell into that problem, you need to understand why that problem exists, what realities your partners and clients are facing into and how best to help them. Excellent. And then looking forward then, um, you mentioned briefly um, earlier in the show, you might have a, a second book in the pipeline. Have you had any thoughts about what shape that's going to take yet? Yes, I have. So the first book is very heavily focused on all the things that can go wrong inside a big organization and what we can do to get around them, to get past them, to to stop getting in our own way. And it's based very heavily on my own experiences over the last almost 20 years. The second book is about what it takes to go right. And I'm actually doing a very large number of interviews of practitioners inside both big organizations and scaling startups, founders, investors, et cetera, to get their views. I'm not intending to do a quantitative study. The interviews are it's a large number for the variety of opinions, but um, it still will remain qualitative. But it's actually very interesting to see some of the topics already emerging. And we should definitely do a sort of a few sneak previews as we get closer. First out of the podcast, we have on our infamous fintech jail. This is where we ask for an industry term, buzzword, or trend that our guest has seen or heard enough of. We then debate whether it deserves a place in the jail or if it's already there, whether it needs an extended sentence. Or, of course, our guest can argue to free one of the previously incarcerated terms. So, later, which buzzwords do you want to hand a sentence to then this week? To start no, season I four? came in determined I was going to free a term, right? I actually poured through the list of inmates. And they all deserve to stay exactly where they are, actually. <laughs> and I'm surprised that there isn't multiple entries for my buzzword that goes into Room 101 and FinTech Jail, and that's channels. 
how can we be talking about channels in 2023? I'm finding myself in conversations with a lot of banking institutions of various sizes, and some of them surprisingly young and digitally savvy, who still talk about channels and servicing those channels separately. So a bank will still have their colleague on a different set of systems, their call center on a different set of systems, the customer on a different set of systems, the colleague in the branch on a variety of systems that they will have to log in and out of. And rather than going, this is madness, we have to level the lot and start from the beginning of what it is we're trying to achieve, what information we have, where and how it needs to travel, they still approach the digitization of those channels as individual components. And you still meet people who are head of digital channels, head of digital distribution, head of channels. And although it absolutely makes sense, it is not quite in the same category as the envelope icon for your email, where it's now a sort of quaint anachronism, it is still informing how people think, which means that it still reflects decision-making and structures and remits, right? If your job is head of digital channels for a retail bank, that means that branches and call centers report into someone else which means that budgets, unless you're really, really good friends and you can align on all your initiatives, budgets and technology decisions are not in step, which of course means that the same fragmentation is happening in SME, SMB and business banking. And not only are these different divisions not necessarily talking to each other, but the distribution channels inside those are not talking to each other, which means that even as we go through the exercise of digitizing capabilities, we do it in a way that is looking backwards, not forwards, that's replicating organizations that may have made sense 10, 15, 20 years ago, but no longer makes sense. Holistic, horizontal, reusable economies of scale require holistic thinking around data governance, about systems, and you can't have retail channels and somebody looking at colleague experiences in a call center over here and customer experience over there in a way that's disconnected. If you need help, call us, 10x can help. <laughs> Nice, nice. I was going to ask whether this was something you hear a lot in your line of work, but obviously it is. It is. Yeah. And that the division between lines of business is one that you don't even question anymore. It's like you have the retail bank here and the SME bank and the corporate bank, and that we consider normal. And even that causes challenges in reuse of technology. We are seeing some of the pioneers and the sort of forward thinking folks in some of the banks we're working with that actually are coming to the table to use the same technology laterally across businesses. But that takes a particular type of leadership to do it across businesses. And imagine if you're someone who has just gotten a promotion as their head of digital channels for the bank, what are the chances of spending time coalescing support from all the people managing call centers? Chances are you're going to try on a personal level to show traction, to show you're good at your job. And you Meanwhile, you'll be creating two estates that don't necessarily talk to each other. It's not everywhere, but it's still happening. It's time it's stopped. It's interesting because like, things like the word silo is always seen as a negative, but then channels is almost like almost a, a kind of offshoot of silo. And it's, yeah, so it is absolutely the, um, the sort of more benign way of describing. I mean, I guess if you were to get rid of this, I mean, usually I kind of ask if this is something that you might want to replace it with, but I guess this is just something that we can just get rid of and do away with it. It's something we could, we should get rid of. In fact, read my book, it will help. The sort of senior decision makers at a board exco level 
should be looking at their bank and going, we've done great. We've made it to here. And it could be hundreds of years for some of those banks. We are solvent. We're viable. We have customers. Yeah, we have problems, but also we have all the assets we need to make it into the future. In a fully digital economy, what does our state need to look like to be driving down unit economics, increasing security, increasing flexibility? And the estate has to be reusable and extensible as widely as possible. So if you look at it like that from a CEO's perspective, you would not have someone in charge of channels. You would have someone in charge of reusable architecture. And how the customer consumes becomes, yes, channels, but right at the end. Because you shouldn't care whether I access, say, my HSBC account from my phone or my desktop, but you do care because if you are a customer of any high street bank, I pick on HSBC a lot because I'm a customer, but any high street bank, the experience on the app and the experience on the website is different because the systems are different because the capabilities are different. It's not just the UX because when it comes to the channels, they're different. I think it's time that they stop being different. Excellent. That sounds, sounds good to me. I'm in complete agreement. You'll have no uh, complaints from me about chucking this one into the jail. So um, yes, we will um, hand this one a sentence and I will throw away the key. I would imagine it might be a while until somebody wants to break channels back out. So this might be the last time we see it, hopefully. I don't think it will be. <laughs> but there we are. We'll see. Excellent. Well, that's all we have time for this episode. Thanks, of course, to Leda for joining me. As for Fintech Futures, you can find us online at www.fintechfutures.com, on Twitter at Fintech Futures, and of course, on LinkedIn. If you like this podcast and our other episodes, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or your favorite podcasting service to get notified about future episodes. As always, thank you very much for your support. We'll see you again for another episode of What the Fintech. But until then, goodbye.